Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn, be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Like Me, Like You. Today is my day off. It is a rainy day, so I have locked myself literally in my closet to record this next episode. Uh, The time in which we all live in is so very strange right now. Uh, One of the things that I just accomplished in my own personal life is a specific school that I moved to Nashville for. One of the reasons I moved to Nashville here Um, was for a school called the School of Supernatural Life, which is out of a church called Grace Center in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, It has personally changed my life. It has done so many other things besides change my life. Um, As far, well, I guess it all changed. (laughs) I guess it all changes my life. But centered around, you know, confidence in who I am, confidence in who God says I am, confidence in who God is, all of these things that I was unsure of. Um, I will tell future stories regarding what my life looked like before SOSL and who I was before SOSL, and hopefully it is completely different now than uh, before. But one of the things that the school does that I was so appreciative of was they kind of uh, bring your heart to the surface and allow you to kind of like look at all the stuff that you've been holding on to in your life. Like sometimes we're so curious about why we are the way that we are. I don't know if you've ever seen the office episode where Michael is talking to Toby and he strongly dislikes Toby, who's the HR um, representative in their office. And one of the things that he says is, you know, why are you the way you are? And I used to ask myself that question all of the time. I probably still do ask myself like, oh, Bethany, why are you the way you are? Like, what are you doing? Why do you do that? I probably say that to myself so many times that it, gets embarrassing. I need to I, I embarrass myself saying it to myself if that makes sense. If that resounds with anyone else in the whole entire world. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it does to me. So, one of the things that the school does is it allows you time and space and gives you the tools you need and trusted people who are safe um that you are allowed to be vulnerable with and kind of bring stuff up to the surface that maybe has uh, in a negative way affected your life somehow. You know, they, they go into great detail about basically wounds and uh, things that we take on even as children that we might not even be aware of really until we sit down and think about it. You know, and how those things that have happened to us sometimes, you know, we're like innocent little children and Sometimes it's our parents. They're doing the very best they can with what they have. They're doing better than their parents. You know, sometimes it's authority 
over us when we're children. It's your teachers. It's, you know, aunts and uncles, extended family, older siblings. Uh, And sometimes it's strangers. Sometimes there's things that you can't control that have happened to you. And unfortunately, we receive messages that start to shape our little personalities and our lives. And, you know, trauma happens. And it's something that I was always afraid to touch and I was always afraid to admit to. I, I had to be like strong. I couldn't be someone that was phased by trauma. I had this whole mindset of like, well, just get over it. Just stop that. You know, oh, you're sad. Well, stop it was like my heart posture. And I think it was because I had experienced, you know, some trauma. And unfortunately, for many years, decided to choose careers where I would voluntarily insert myself in other people's trauma, whether it be working in a NICU with preemies and sick newborns or working as a mortician and embalming bodies and sitting with families who have experienced major tragedy, which we talked about in my previous episode. Um, But the thing that I wanted to talk about today was just a taste of kind of cracking open stories that have happened to me that made me realize through the school of SOSL or School of Supernatural Life that made me realize like, oh, maybe you've experienced some things that have negatively affected your life and you've not been able to put your thumb on it until now, if that makes sense. So one of the ways that my family (laughs) deals with hurt and even bad things happening is we always kind of try to have, you know, a sunny disposition. And I realize now that my parents probably did that because they were trying to keep themselves from just being tanked. You know, we all kind of go through seasons of hard, like life gets hard sometimes, you know, and we try to convince ourselves how to deal with it which is like the appropriate way to deal with it and in our house the appropriate way to deal with it was we were not allowed to be negative we weren't allowed to talk negatively we weren't allowed to speak negatively we weren't allowed to complain nothing like that and I in hindsight appreciate it but at the same time realize it was probably my parents just trying to be able to also you know keep themselves from you know falling into that as well So like complaining is contagious, you know, but I think what happens sometimes is we receive the message that, okay, well, I can't say anything bad. Even if bad things are happening, I can't say it because it's going to bum everybody else out. So what I learned to do was tell it in a funny way. (laughs) I figured if I could tell what happened to me and make everybody laugh, I get to say what happened. And also people aren't traumatized by my trauma. (laughs) which sounds crazy, but that is 100% the truth. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is my first experience telling this story when it didn't land as funny. I was in the first year of SOSL. I've done all three years. They have a first year, which is an introduction year, which is amazing. They give you all the basic tools that you need. There is a second year, and that is more Bible-based, kind of going deeper. And then there is a third year that is a leadership intern year, and that is awesome. I just finished that. So you kind of build on each foundation each year. And it's been life-changing. It's been great, like I said before. But one of the things that they do is they put you in a group 
of uh, six to eight people and you have a small group leader. And your small group leader is kind of this person that you get to go to with all of your questions and with all of your concerns and, and help me with this. And what do you think about this? And you get to walk through the next eight months of the school with this group of people together. And they're all the same sex. So, you know, guys with guys, girls with girls. And so I had five girls in my group my first year and they were awesome. And uh, Ashton, if you're listening, was my small group leader and she was phenomenal. So (laughs) this is my processing of this thing. This memory that I'm about to tell you about would keep coming up and keep coming up and it would start coming up in dreams and it would start coming up. And so finally I decided like, okay, I'm going to share this. This is like a safe space. I'm going to share this with my small group girls and my small group leader. And I thought maybe I can do it like I always do in a very funny way. And uh, they will laugh and then maybe give me some insight. It'll be over. And what ended up happening was I told them the story And I looked up from telling them the story and every single one of them was crying, like crying, traumatized and moved at the fact that there was this wasn't right. And I remember Ashton looking at me and saying, Bethany, that was not okay. Like what happened to you was not okay." And I can remember it hitting like a ton of bricks. Like I never thought, as crazy as that sounds, I never thought that I was allowed to say that wasn't okay, that that, what happened was not okay. Uh, For the sake of honoring, I'm going to leave names out. I'm just going to not mention names, but I will tell the story to my best of ability and maybe you'll understand. And I, through this story, can uh, people listen and understand that, hey, like it's okay to know that some things happen that are not okay. And there is a, ve- a happy ending to this story. So please, uh, please just remember that. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy thing. So I'll explain further. Um, we, as in my family, I have an older sister and a younger brother and my parents, my dad is a pastor and we are originally from Canada. And my dad took a church from Canada, we were in Moncton, New Brunswick, to Lemon, South Dakota. And Lemon, South Dakota, we were there for a couple years, and it is still today one of my favorite places that I've ever lived. It was the complete opposite of my home, but it was so different that I loved it. We went from being around fishermen and forests in northern Canada to the plains of South Dakota with farmers and cows, and it was unreal. I still have a best friend out there today. Kayla and Drew are awesome, and they run a cattle ranch out there, and I I would still go and visit as an adult. So from South Dakota, my dad moved us to a small town in Indiana, eastern Indiana, and uh, that's where I finished high school. And Hannah graduated from high school, my older sister, and Judah was also in school. And I would say Indiana was not an easy time in our lives. It was just kind of a difficult place to be. South Dakota was such a breath of fresh air, and people accepted us and loved us and was so kind. And the school was amazing. It really geared me toward education. And then Indiana was just kind of this little place of 
I can't even describe it. I don't know. It was like a factory town, and they all kind of had just different beliefs and different ideas about life. It was a little bit depressing, (laughs) but there we were as a family, you know, and so I could see my parents struggle. I could see my dad really struggling to be there and stay there, and what my sister and I did was we started to take on responsibility that wasn't ours to take, not out of our parents doing, not, they didn't ask us to, but my sister and I were well aware of this situation, so we started to manage my parents' feelings regarding anything that we were going through or dealing with. So that means that we would keep things from them or protect them from some some people or things, or we would uh, stick up for them, or we would go out of our way to make sure that things were, you know, not bothering our parents. And no parent loves to hear that. That's not anything a parent even wishes that their children would do. But in our little minds, it was the best thing that we could do at the time because we were miserable. It was just a different place to live. You know, we believe that it was on purpose and we met great people there, but it was uh, very rough. And it was during this time that the story takes place. I was a senior in high school at the time. My sister had just finished a year of ministry school in Columbus, Ohio. And she came back and was trying to get the youth group up and running and going. And she was barely out of youth herself. She was, I think, all of 20 years old, like barely out of the youth group, trying to start a a program and really invest in youth to grow our youth group. I, on the other hand, played sports. I uh, played soccer. And at the very beginning of my senior year during a practice, I tore my ACL. And that in and of itself was a little weird. We didn't know what was going on. I refused to do a lot of things that I should have done. And I wouldn't let my dad take me to the doctor. And until I think it was two weeks, I was on a broken or a torn ACL for two weeks. And finally, my dad was like, we have to go. We have to, this isn't getting better. This isn't healing. Like, we have to take you to the doctor. So we go to a doctor in Indianapolis and come to find out my knee, I was so terrified of moving it because of the initial pain that I kept it frozen in place for two weeks. So my knee started to begin to atrophy in that bent position. So the doctor couldn't even straighten out my leg enough to check it to see if I had actually even torn my ACL. So before I could even get checked to see if my ACL was torn, I had to go to physical therapy to straighten it out. And then I went back, he knew right away, I had surgery, I think a week later, Um, and was on the road to recovery for for my knee. So this story happened maybe a couple weeks after my surgery. I was on the up and up, still on crutches, still on pain medication, uh, but feeling very good like we all do. You know, we all kind of sometimes jump the gun and think we're doing a lot better than we actually are. And my sister was planning a youth event out in one of the members of the church had a a farm. And so the youth event was an all-nighter camp out in the in this farm in a field and we were having a bonfire and treats and all of that stuff and kids are allowed to stay up late and all of that and I begged my mom please let me go like I will do anything I'm fine look I barely need my crutches this is great like it's gonna be great it's gonna be great I think I probably begged her and bugged her until she finally just gave in and was like okay fine 
you know, and I made sure to pack pajamas and I had all of that stuff and I convinced her it was going to be okay. And if I got tired, I'd sit down and I put my leg up and it'd be no big deal. And, uh, it came the night of the, of the bonfire and camp night and we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was a pro probably 25 minutes away from my actual house. And at the time I didn't have a car. This was 1999, 19, 2000, maybe <laughs> the year 2000. So I didn't have a car, didn't have a cell phone. It was nothing like that. And was out in this field in with fire, totally forgot my medication, didn't pack like I should have because I was a teenager, like I wasn't thinking. And it hit me probably around midnight, like I am in an excruciating pain. I can barely move. I don't have my medicine. I don't have anything to ice my leg with. We're sitting on logs. I can't like elevate my leg anywhere. I need to go home. And so I approached my sister and was like, Hannah, I have to go. Like, I need to go home. I am in so much pain. Like, I can barely see. Like, eh, I'm in excruciating pain. And Hannah gave me the really bad news that, unfortunately, she was one of the only chaperones. And they only had one vehicle. And she couldn't leave 15 teenagers in the woods or in a field with fire and camp unattended. Like, unfortunately, she couldn't take me. We didn't know what to do. And then it dawned on my sister. There's a guy in the youth group who has a truck. Now, let me set the scene to, for this. This guy in our youth group was a farm boy from Indiana. He had tried multiple times before to ask me out on dates uh, and try to get me to go out with him and things like that. And I didn't want to. I didn't like him. I don't want to I don't want to be dishonoring but he wasn't the brightest bulb in the pack if you know what I mean and he scared me a little like he would do things that were scary to me like um he w carried around knives you know what I mean like on his belt like things like that talked about skin and cats and stuff like I am a little afraid of you. I don't want to go out with you. You scare me. Um, that sort of a guy. And unfortunately, he was the only one that could drive me home. Prior to this, he would show up at my house and ask me to go out with him then and there. Like he would show up at 730 at night, knock on the door and say, I want to take you out on a date. And I would politely decline. And he would say, go get dressed. I want to take you on a, a date now. And I would in my wisdom would lie and say, I'm so sorry, my dad won't let me go out. I'm not allowed to date. And that was just me trying every avenue I could to make sure he understood I couldn't go out with him. But it didn't sink in. It never sank in. He was relentless with pursuit and I was not interested. And here I find myself in the position of extreme pain and the only way to relieve this pain is for me to go out in a truck alone with this guy and I think there's been something deep down in me for a long time that doesn't like owing anyone anything I don't know if maybe this is the reason but I do not like owing anyone anything at all and so sometimes I have a hard time with people showing kindness to me because I assume later on they're going to call me for 
a return on their favor, if that makes sense. So this was one of those instances where I knew, man, if I do this, he's going to ask me out. And what am I going to say? What am I going to do? You know, not realizing at the time that there's a thing called boundaries and there's a thing called like powerful communication where I have every right to say no. So I finally, you know, agreed and compromised with my sister and thought, you're right. Like, I just am in so much pain. What's 25 minutes? I don't care. I'm just going to go home. And so she calls him over and she says, hey, like Bethany's in a lot of pain, her knee, this is the issue. Are you able to take her home? And with delight, he like quickly answered like, yes, yes, I'll take you home. So I get in his truck, a truck in which he made by pieces of other trucks, by the way. So his truck was comprised of other trucks that he pieced together, which is pretty smart. If you, you know, if you think about it now, I couldn't take different parts of vehicles and make another vehicle. So good on you, man. And he had like a back, you know, he had one of these like weird wooden back parts of the truck and in it were like extra gas, you know, things like that. Cause he was a farm boy. Like, so I get in this truck and it's silent for such a long time. It's so awkward. And I finally looked at him and I said, you know what? Thanks. Like, thanks for taking me home. Like, I really appreciate it. I'm in a lot of pain. I appreciate you taking me home. And he announces like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to take you home. And I sat there in disbelief. I had no idea what he meant. Finally, I said, what are you talking about? I need to go home. I'm in a lot of pain. And he just said, well, yeah, I'll take you home, but I'm just not going to take you home yet. He said, I want to show you the first, like, I'm going to take you to the first place that I killed my first deer. So we went down this country road, down this back dirt road in the middle of the night to find a place where he first shot his first deer. And I thanked him and said okay can I can I please go home now and he said "Mm, no not yet I'm gonna take you to the place that I fish so then we went down another back road another dirt road in the middle of the night I had no idea where we were so he could show me the fishing hole that he catches his catfish in and I started to realize a pattern after my third time of asking can you take me home now? And he said, no, I'm going to take you to where I like to, you know, mow this field. And he started to make up excuses and reasons as to why he couldn't take me home and where he was taking me next. And after our third location, I was starting to panic. On the inside of me, I was starting, I had this like intuition. I you know, this naive intuition that he's going to harm me. He, he's actually going to harm me. He's going to hurt me. And I don't know what to do. And all I could think of was that the police are going to find my naked body with crutches in a ditch somewhere. Like, that's not going to make any sense to anybody. I don't know why he thought I thought he would leave my crutches with me. But that was my mindset of like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to fend him off? I started to make a plan in my head. Okay, I can't run because my knee's swollen now to double its size. I could barely walk before without crutches. I can't run on crutches. And then I thought, well, maybe I could 
hit him with crutches. Well, I can't do it when he's driving, so I'm going to have to bank on the fact that we actually get out of the car. I started to plan as he's driving me further down a dirt country road all of this stuff that I could possibly do to protect myself and try to fight against what the unknown, I guess. I just didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to do, you know? So I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And unbeknownst to me, I was totally correct. We we're driving down a country road and I can remember him, the car, the truck just slowing down. Like it just, we got slower and it was a stick shift. So he was gearing down and we finally came to a stop and there were no houses to be found. There were no fences to be found. There was nothing to indicate that people were around nowhere. And we sat in silence for what felt like forever. And I probably, if, if I were to look back and actually be uh, logistical about it. I would say it was probably about three minutes, maybe three minutes in silence, two minutes in silence. And I finally, I was so afraid to even look at him. I was looking straight ahead and I finally looked to the left of me where he was sitting and he was white knuckle gripping the steering wheel. Like, our, like you could tell he was warring within himself over what is going to happen next. And he was gripping the steering wheel like his knuckles were white. And I can remember seeing that. And it dawned on me, he is either trying to convince himself not to do something or he is trying to convince himself to do something. And all of a sudden, I got totally calm. I had a total peace about me. And I looked at him and I said his name. And he looked at me and I said, if you do this, you are going to break my parents' heart. If you do this, if you do what you're planning on doing, my dad will not recover from this. My parents will not recover from this. If you do this, you won't just be hurting me. You'll be, hurt, you'll be hurting my little brother. You'll be hurting my mom, my dad. You'll be hurting Hannah. All the youth that were here tonight, like they'll have to like figure out what happened. Like someone will know that we left together, someone will know that you were the last person to be with me. And I was calm and I was cool and I was collected. And I know to this day that that was not me because anyone that's good friends with me knows how loud I am and how um, intense I can be. I've been told I've been intense quite a few times. So I know that I can get loud. I can get intense. But in this instance, I was very quiet. I was very calm. And I started to literally plead with his compassion and gave it a minute, let it sink in. And then I just, I kept saying, I kept relentlessly saying, you know, you'll hurt so many people. Like, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You, you are better than this. You know better than this. I was just constantly repeating myself and, um, the next thing I knew, he turned the keys back on and put the car in gear and took me home. And I was beside myself. And it was probably, I think, three or four hours later of this whole, like, driving, stopping, taking me here, 
showing me this, stopping, not taking me home, taking me to another place, stopping. That whole thing was around four hours maybe when we got, finally when he pulled in the driveway, it was starting, the sky was starting to change where it was just slight, that weird from night to like twilight blue of the sun is going to be coming up pretty soon. And I can remember jumping into my car, out of his car, sorry, and politely walking to the door and turning around and waving goodbye and getting inside my house and crawling up the stairs to my parents' bedroom and frantically opening the door and throwing myself on their bed. And I can remember my dad just like rustling awake, like just wow, like what is going on? Because I terrified him. They were both in bed. They had no idea what was going on. They thought I was at a youth event. They thought I was camping in some field somewhere with chaperones and other kids. They had no idea what just happened to me. And I broke down and started to sob hysterically. And through the sobs, like, Dad, I, and I told my dad the, what happened. And my mom woke up and she didn't know what was happening. And I told it again and I was sobbing. And my dad was reconciling with what I was saying. And he finally looked at me and sternly said, get in your room and go to bed. And I can remember being like, what? And he just said, go to bed, get in your room, go to bed. And I did. I wiped my nose and wiped off my tears and stood up and limped myself to my bed. And I crawled in bed and I cried myself to sleep. And for years, I thought that that's where the story ended for years. So fast forward, I'm telling this story to my small group girls and I look up and every single one of them is sobbing. Now, before when I would tell that story, I would tell it with funny funny antics and I would, you know, throw in snide comments and dark humor and everybody would be roaring, you know, just roaring with laughter. And uh, that would be the end of it. But this time I didn't do it. I told it just like I told you. And uh, they sobbed. And that's at the point where Ashton looked at me and said, that is not okay. What happened to you is not okay. And it kind of sunk in with me, like, wait a minute, that isn't okay. Hold on a minute. So one of the things about SOSL is that they tell you that you should uh, work through this stuff and be able to find out why and find out more and get closure on things uh, so that you can have the right perspective from this point out. And I thought, man, I can't bring this up to my parents. Like, this would be devastating. Like, this would devastate them. Like, I can't talk about this. This would be awful. And I can remember finally mustering up the strength and being like, you know what? I have to. Like, this thing, this this story, this memory keeps popping up. Like, I got to find out. You know, I got to tell my parents. So my parents are now in Canada. They're pastors in Canada. And I... FaceTimed them like I do multiple times a week and my mom and dad answered and I said hey guys is there any way that I could talk to you about something and I was kind of fumbling over my words and I didn't know how I was gonna go about it and I brought it up and I just said hey do you remember when this happened to me in high school this happened to me with this guy in our church and you know this is how it ended for me this was my experience on my end and I said, I just want to let you know, I think my heart received the message through all of this that like, 
I am not worth fighting for. Like, I'm not worth uh, going to battle for or to protect. I don't know. It was, that wasn't the truth. You know, my parents love me. They are good parents. My parents are amazing parents that have protected and fought for me. So I was trying to explain this in a way that wasn't hurtful to them either. You know, my parents are good parents. And so I laid it out and my dad smiled and he said, oh, do you not, did I never tell you what happened? And I can remember saying, what? And he said, did I, did I never tell you what happened? And I said, no, dad, like that's where the story ends to me. And he said, oh, that is not how it ends. And he proceeded to tell me that he got up and got dressed as the sun was coming up. He made sure that I was in my room safe and asleep. And he got in his car and he drove over to that guy's house, to his parents' house. And he confronted him and said, if you ever come near my daughter ever again, I will kill you where you stand. I will go to jail for this. I will kill you outright. You will never speak to her again. You will never talk to her again. You'll never look at her again. You know, and... um. That brought such closure to my heart that my dad protected me. He stood up for me. He, you know, did what he did. And that changed everything for me. That fixed that hole that I had so many years of that story that had like a tinge of pain to it. I mean, granted, at the end of the day, nothing happened. I got home. He took me home, you know. Um, and at the time there was not much that could be done. It was a small town. My dad was a pastor in a small town, you know, there was warring with what to do and, you know, do you call the police and do you do this and do you do that? And, you know, to this day, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that my dad, uh, protected me. And that is one of the things that I've been going through and working through is memories like that, taking them, evaluating them, being truthful about them, talking to the people that um, that were involved to find out their perspective. And I am so glad that I did. My dad took care of everything. And uh, to this day, it's changed who I am in the past three years, knowing that answer, that there was... Um, a story at the end that I was unaware of, a protection uh, beyond what I knew happened. And it does something good for your heart. It does something good to know you are loved, you are protected, you were fought over and fought for. And uh, to this day, that is something that will forever stick in my mind of what happened to me as a teenager. So uh, if you are out there, and you have had an experience of trauma in some way, shape, or form, whether it be less than what I've just talked about or worse, um, just know that there is always more to the story in a sense of people loving you. And I just want to encourage you that there is uh, better things to do than to make fun of it or even push it down or to try to ignore it or forget it. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those things that will always push itself to the surface until you just deal with it. So thanks so much for listening to this session of uh, Like Me, Like You. And I would love to get comments or hear about what you guys think about this. I 
you know, I'm fairly new to this whole thing. And I will say that everyone that I've talked to about it just keeps telling me, we just want to hear your stories. We just want to hear your stories. So bear with me as I reveal all of the things that happened. You can find me on Instagram at like me like you official. And if you want to subscribe, I would love that and stick around for more stories until next time. Thanks for listening.